Hello everyone, welcome back to this first episode of our 15th season in our Sabbath School From Home uh, podcast. Lock, it seems a long time since we were all experiencing COVID shutdown for the first time. Yeah, it, it does. Um, interestingly, I was listening to a CoronaCast podcast from the ABC just last week, and although it's so easy to put COVID out of our minds and it not experience much in our lives, it, it's still worth noticing that COVID is still around and is still um, a reasonably serious thing. But definitely, it's a long time since we were living the life of lockdowns and, and all of those aspects that, that drove us to start this project. Yeah. Um, Ken's not with us and Luke's not with us. And like I haven't been with you for some time. I've, it's been very sporadic. Um, and uh, that's um, been unfortunate, but it's just the way it is. But I am pleased to be here for this one. Um, and this quarter promises to be interesting. It's on God's mission. Yeah. I actually have a very brief anecdote, um, two brief anecdotes. I, I think that God's mission is one of the things that can be a real focal point for the Christian experience, the Christian life, especially for people who live a fairly comfortable existence. I think that messages of God's salvation and God's saving power are very, very meaningful and very, very important for people living through difficulties, for people living through persecution and suffering. They, they are still worth pondering for people whose lives are going well, but I sometimes think that they just lack a little bit of that urgency and imperative. But mm -hmm. God's mission can be a call to action, can be a, a rallying point, can be a, a focal point for the Christian life, even for people whose lives, in fact, perhaps even more so for people whose mm. lives are, are going reasonably well or who are living fairly comfortably or, you know, who are not um, having mm. lives threatened and all of the other aspects. So that's one of the things that I've, that I've thought about over recent years. Um, I remember being really challenged to, you know, the, the missional focus for Christianity. There are some authors outside Adventism that have played with this idea, um, in some ways almost making the mission of God and participating in God's mission mm. in the world as almost the sort of core element of, of the Christian experience. It's, it's a very, very interesting way to motivate it. I, I think that's quite fascinating. And then my, just a little bit more personally, my own, um, my own anecdote here is that I remember very, very vividly, no, a, a crisis of faith is stating it perhaps a little too strongly, but uh, when I lived in Germany, um, it might have been something that I was reading at the time or just a line of thought that I was following. And I remember feeling this really tangible, uh, a stronger doubt, I think, than, than I had in my life up till that point. You know, is this, is this stuff all real? You know, does it even make sense? And I remember sitting on the bus commuting to work and really what 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 underpinned my feeling at the time this is what i remember most distinctly was the feeling that i'm not sure at the time i was feeling i'm not sure if i can feel god's presence or if he's even real but i do feel a passionate desire to align with his mission it was it was my own version of what puddleglum experiences yeah. in the silver chair where he says, I'm not even sure if Aslan is real, but I'm going to live as if he's real because I think it's the most exciting and engaging idea 
to to align with. Mm. So th th those are just a couple of anecdotes that perhaps help to um, give a little bit of background to some of the comments I might be inclined to make as we go through this this season. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, my reaction is very mixed, only because um, you know we belong to a a, um, a evangelical tradition where. Um, the sort of emphasis on going out and doing God's work is quite strong. and But God's, often that involves... See, what's interesting is that Jesus did, did preaching, but he did a lot of stuff that wasn't preaching. And it really comes down to what's the definition of God's mission. Um, we have illness in my family at the moment, which is one reason why I'm not recording um, this podcast. And the local church is drowning us with food. Huh. We had to had to tell them now that's um they're supplying you know weekly food packages and it is literally a godsend and um tanner was eating a shepherd's pie the other day and he was going for second helpings and i said tanner it's a good shepherd's pie isn't it he said oh yes it's a miracle um meaning <laughs> describing describing its flavor um and i thought it was a very articulate clever way of describing the taste of something that was nice um you know, that's God's mission at work. And I struggle when I hear, um, I went to a church once, I won't say which church, it was full of very nice people, but um, my wife and I lowered the average age of church attendees to about 82. Um, huh. And um, they would run revelation seminars, and they did for about 15 weeks, I think. And they would sing the hymn, Bringing in the Sheaves. And it just felt so discongruous. It was very obvious <laughs> that what, what this church was doing, and it was doing quite well, was helping people who were at a similar stage of life, um, who belonged to a tradition that mattered to them, support each other really well. Yeah. It, it wasn't... And they were doing evangelism in the way that it had been done when they were young. And the sort of evangelism that had brought them into the church. And I know God's mission is not synonymous with evangelism. But um, we sometimes treat it as if it is. And I, we are missing Luke here to jump in with his um, Adra hat on um, because I know that Adra is sometimes feels pressure from other branches of the church to be more overtly evangelistic. Um, so I'll be interested to see what sort of emphases I've drawn out in the lesson because the, God's mission is, um, is a fairly wide-reaching sort of concept. Yeah. You know, it was God's mission just to help us intellectually assent to certain statements um, and propositions. It was God's mission to, well, I guess that's what the court is about. I won't, I won't enumerate lots of options. Um, yeah. Um, what does it, what, what does it mean to be trying to adhere to God's mission? And um, anyway, I, I yeah, feel well, a little I... uncomfortable because in a in a church where. Um, where a lot is said about doing God's work, I feel that the emphasis is maintained just as much to justify our organisation and to give us a sense of warm, cuddly feelings as it is to actually engage with God's mission. Yeah. You know, you know why yeah, are we meeting I, here? What's a, what? Yeah, because we're doing God's mission. Yeah, we're doing God's work. <laughs> yeah. I think you're really right. No, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying, and I think I probably share... Um, misgivings about some of the ways that we apply the word um and and i think the lesson actually does start in a pretty good place 
this first week and flowing into the second week of this season, we before we get too deep into analysing what mission means for us, you know, what other ways to participate in mission, the lesson actually dives in initially to sort of say, well, hang on a minute, mission is all about God and God is in fact all about mission and what does God's mission look like in the Bible? And um, it just keeps drawing out these stories where God seeks out his people. Um, I mean, starting right in, in the story of the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit and they're, and they're afraid and they're hiding from God, they don't go looking for God. God comes looking for them. Um, mm. And that, that theme keeps coming up uh, surprisingly frequently throughout the Bible, actually. I mean, the story of Abraham, mm. um, even the story of the Exodus, um, which is formative, as we've commented in previous episodes. Uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting way to start thinking about it. Yeah, it is. Look, um, the lesson refers to John three sixteen as a sort of a. It's a, it's very much a, one of the sort of standard pat answers as to what sort of Christ's mission was when when God became man. Um, I would like to read a more extended passage around it. Couldn't we turn to John three and read verses one to twenty one? Yeah, let's do it. I might start. Look, there's only two of us, so it's going to be a bit easier to mediate comments. Let's Instead of reading the whole thing and then talking about it, let's stop and, and voice comments as they arise. Okay. This is John chapter 3, starting verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. I'm going to interrupt straight there. Uh, Many commentators have pointed out after dark, this is a bit clandestine, this is a bit secretive. Um, Here's someone who is a Pharisee, and in most of the Gospels, the Pharisees don't get a massive um, five-star review, do they? But (laughs) here's one who is a Pharisee and is wanting to learn a little bit more. Look, I've got two sort of responses to that. One of them is, um, it is a bit clandestine, but... um, in a culture without air conditioning and um, where it's very hot, uh, the evening was leisure time. Um, you know, people having flat roofs and going up and sitting on the roof in the evening and, and what. So, I mean, I I think there is a suggestion of it being somewhat clandestine. Um, but I imagine there was a lot of socialising that happened in evenings. Um, yeah, that's probably true. Um, the, the other is that the Pharisees, um, we spend so much time um, what's the word to like belittling the Pharisees that it feels a little bit like uh, what is it Shakespeare says this man doth protest too much yeah <laughs> um, and and in the um, Les Mis when it describes the bishop at the start of the story one of the comments about the bishop that's used to to show you how wise he is is that when he hears people complaining uh, or loudly decrying with great vehemence, a particular sin. And, you know, it really takes a grip. You know, the community becomes very anxious to crack down on this. Um, the bishop is recorded to have said to himself, ah, so this is another sin they are all guilty of. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I tell you what, it, the Adventists are the Pharisees of the Christian world. In, well, in all that's good as well as all that's bad, um, take a reading of the text, the Bible, nothing but the Bible, observe the Sabbath, keep the whole commandments of Jesus. All of these things 
this emphasis on commandments and emphasis on the truth and emphasis on the Bible and on personal Bible study and all the you know, the Pharisees would put us to shame. They'd be a much better Adventist yeah. than I'm. Huh. Um, so uh, I, I think that it's um, this chapter is actually one of the chapters that gives me most hope for the Adventist church because it's very clear in the Bible that being learned and being clever, being articulate, even having memorized large amounts of scripture is not insurance against error. The Pharisees yeah, are recorded yeah. as being wrong lots of times. But it's also the case that Jesus is able to speak to Nicodemus in an entirely different way. He, he says to the disciples, they say, why do you say stories? He said, oh, it's like Isaiah says, you know, people hear but they don't understand. I have to tell them in stories. Um, with Nicodemus, he goes into like hardcore abstract idea right up front. Yes. Um, and Nicodemus seems to access this. And, and what it seems to suggest is that being an academic sort is certainly no advantage, but nor does it, is, does it appear to be a particular disadvantage, um, yeah. which I find comforting for an academic person belonging to a fairly academic um, denomination. Well, that's a good that's a good comment. In in line with that, with that focus on an academic approach, the other comment that jumped out at me in verse two was that yeah. Nicodemus uses the verb teach. He says, Rabbi, yeah. we know we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Of course, the the good Protestant European Christian description is that we all know God has sent you to save us. So, yeah. so it's really interesting. It's really interesting with that as the juxtaposition to to read Nicodemus, obviously in a very different position, and before yeah. the cross, and all sorts of things are different. But he is identifying Christ's mission as being one of teaching, um, and that's, I think that's interesting quite fascinating. too because. Because he's that shows a fair amount of humility. Because the Pharisees were the experts. Um, True. So, so saying you have come to teach us, he's he's being humble. Uh, Jesus might actually, you know, because Jesus gives a very odd response in verse three. He says, "Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." <laughs> yeah. Is that is if so? As an answer to, you know, God has sent you to teach us. Is Jesus saying here actually, you when he says you can't see the kingdom of God, does he mean see as in understand? Is he speaking as a teacher and saying, well, actually, yeah, I've been sent to teach, but are you ready to learn? You actually need to be born again to be able to understand what I'm saying to you. Yeah, I've never seen it that way before, but it, I wonder if that could be the case. Yeah. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from, nor where it goes. Um, a lot of my students don't know where they're coming from or where they're going. It's, it seems as they wander in and out of my classroom, but I'm, I'm sure that's not what Jesus was meaning. Um, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is, um, it's an odd statement, isn't it? Yeah. What's what's irritating is like in the maths journals where they say, it is clear that, and um, <laughs> I, I think I've, I've said this before, there's some proof, and the proof says, blah, 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 blah,
and it's the third step out of 15 steps in the proof. And you look at it and you struggle away and you talk with three colleagues and you pour over it for a month and then you take it to a conference and have a chat with the author and afterwards you come back and you say, oh, yes, it is clear. Um, yeah. So when Jesus says, don't be surprised, <laughs> don't be surprised, this is clear. Um, I have a, a little bit of an idea of um, of what Nicodemus is is feeling here. He must have felt very bemused. That's which born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So the NLT renders that. Um, where's the where's the flesh? Um, verse six. Uh, Human. Verse six. Yeah, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. So you know, the, uh, yeah, yeah. One of the stories that I I've thought a lot about, although I only know it loosely, and as a young child, I was frightened by it, um, is the story of Pinocchio. And I think it's a very wise story. Pinocchio is almost a person. And when you think of the problems that we can get ourselves into, um, you know, at a very sort of basic level, you drive a car too fast, without a seatbelt, you crash and you get brain damage, you've just limited your capacity to express the identity that you had um, yeah. through to you choose to take drugs, uh, through to you choose to indulge in gossip. And over many years, that defines and strengthens neural pathways that turn you into a particular sort of person. Yeah. You choose to harbour grudges and the grudges are about small and petty things and they don't bother you too much, but it becomes a pattern. And then you end up un- under the grip of these parts of your life um, and arguably less than a full person. And I think maybe this is what Jesus is saying at a couple of levels. One of them is saying um, we are in need of transformation. None of you have quite, you're not quite fully a person. It's interesting yeah. too that Pinocchio's nose ex- extends when he tells a lie. Uh, Pinocchio's <laughs> sort of in purgatory as it were. He's in a state of trial and testing, and and it's a very moral paradigm that he's inhabiting. It's a question of yeah. morality, and it's and if if you say all right, well we live in a world where, where choices affect things, um, and we are on a journey to either becoming a real person or not. Huh. And you know when Christ comes to save us, if there is a person there that can be saved, he'll save it. Um, and if there isn't. You know, that, that's this frightening idea. What if the choices I'm making today are making me less of a person? And Jesus is seeming to suggest that there's more to living than just breathing and eating food. Um, you can breathe and eat food, but you might be in the total grip of a paradigm or a worldview or a set of habits or an addiction or um, I don't know. Um mm. Your life choices might have shaped you to be a person that is less, is considerably less, and you you need to be born again. And and um, I guess the the point here that's hopeful is that he seems to suggest that this is a thing God's spirit can do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it gets expanded on. Uh, so picking up in verse nine, which is about where we got to, Nicodemus yeah. isn't quite getting it like you have referred to with the, the maths idea. He needs it yeah. to be explained in a different way. And he says, how are these things possible? Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. 
But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this mm. is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, God sent is... his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Yeah. Now, this is, this is a really interesting follow-on. Jesus has been saying, all right, you have to be born again. Yeah. And then he's saying, um, he's saying two things. You don't understand even the earthly things. Why would you expect to understand the heavenly things? Um, but it's not actually understanding, is it? It's believing. Yeah. Uh, you don't receive our testimony. If you have told the earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So we're in this paradigm where you have to be born again. And there is a sense of mystery about this. Um, there's lots of earthly things that we don't understand. Um, and um, there's lots of things that are earthly things that we try and convince other people of. I um, had a student tell me once that there was no point teaching him algebra. He didn't know need to know about X's and Y's because he was going to be an architect. <laughs> so, um, and it's nice to laugh at a student like that and say, ho, 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 isn't that ridiculous? Okay, he's 14 years old. What else could he expect to think? given his life experience. What's the frightening thought is that we're all kind of like that. Mm. We're, we're, we're totally out in the wrong paradigm. And um, and so he says, well, this follow-on is presumably elaborating what it means to be born again. Well, what it means to be born again is that the Son of Man has to be lifted up like the snake in the wilderness. Yeah. Um, so this, this being born again process is a thing um, that is achieved or is mediated through or is expressed through or is summarized by this process of, the, you know, he appeals to the snake in the wilderness and everyone who looked on the snake was healed. And um, this is not a thing that is, it's, a, it's, it's not like Pinocchio in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, who has to live the right life to become a real boy. Um, it's almost the other way around, isn't it? You become the real boy. And then you live a better life. I mean, I, I don't know yeah. how that metaphor can sort of play out, but it's interesting that Christ develops this in this way. And um, then he says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So this is what this process of being born again is like. Um, it's it's not a thing that you earn. It's yeah. not It's not a thing that God comes in and sorts out who has pleased him well enough because judgment is as much about the people that please God as those who displease God. So this is this is not really about condemnation. Um, this is about uh, this rebirth thing it, is something that God's trying to achieve. He's trying to achieve it universally. Yes, that, I was going to comment on that. Um, to, to save the world, um, everyone who believes in him... Um, Everyone, fifteen and sixteen. Everyone who believes in him, um, the it's not it's not con conclusively or exclusively kind of um, a universalist picture, but it's it's clearly painting a really big picture. It's about it's about saving the world. I mean, that's that's a big connection point through to this this theme of mission. God, God's mission throughout the Bible 
is always pointing towards saving the world. That's what I claim. Um, now mm. you can see in the call of Abram that he he just calls, um, or even in the Exodus, he calls a particular group of people, a particular family, a particular person. But when he calls Abraham, it's so that through Abraham he can bless the whole world. Um, mm. it, it's it's this consistent sort of theme, mm. um, and that, mm. I'd like to come back to that throughout this this season. Um, I think it's something that a lot of the time Christian communities have gotten slightly wrong um, and have and have fallen into traps of thinking God wants to save part of the world um, or the good bit of the world or my bit of the world, um, mm. the, the people that are like me. Uh, that's that's often the trap that we fall into. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and in verse 18, which we were just up to, it it does sound very inclusive. Um, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And um, he then gives a summary of the judgment. This is the judgment. Lights come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Yeah. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I'm not sure I like this translation of verse 21. Can you tell me what your translation says of verse 21? Yeah, I'm, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, which is not a, a, a formal, uh, or not as much of a formal translation. It is um, a little bit more interpretive in places, but it often renders things really readably, uh, and I like that. Uh, so this is, this is verse 20 and 21. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Hmm. I'm just going to look it up in the message. Ha. Yeah. Let's see what that paraphrase says. This is the, um, in the message. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so that the work can be seen for the God work it is. Yeah. What's so interesting, I mean, that, that's where we were going to read up to. But what's so interesting is there is no record. It, the chapter goes on. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went to the Judean countryside. The, there is no record of Nicodemus's response, of, of any ongoing dialogue. Um, this, this is clearly a bit of a condensation of what must have been a much more uh, interrupted conversation, I, I'm sure. Um, yeah. I, I would love to have more record of the, the dialogue and the, the, the struggle, the thinking process that Nicodemus was, was going mm. through trying to understand this stuff. Um, mm. Because it's, it, it is, it, from our perspective, with, with the benefit of hindsight, knowing what Jesus went on to do through his death, mm. um, what his death was like, the way that it, he and then early generations of, of Christians understood from Christ's death, it's really relatively easy to see what is being described, what Jesus is describing here. But it must not have been easy for Nicodemus to see. No. 
Um, and when when you say that it's easy for us to see, um, uh, it's easy for us to like um, systematize this or, or um, condense this into sort of like a a formula. Um, mm. Jesus comes, we believe in Jesus, we are then born again. Um, that's God's mission to the world, uh, which is uh, not wrong. Uh, what Jesus seems to be describing here, though, is something so organic, something so yeah. intimate, something so... Um, this is not the intellectual ascent to fundamental doctrines. Yeah. This is, this is something uh, very deep and, and very mysterious. Uh, you know, what is God's mission in the world and how is he achieving it? And how is he achieving it in me? Am I coming to the light? Do we come to yeah. the light? Um, what, do, what would it look like if everyone at church was very anxious to live in the truth and to come to God with the truth about where their life is. Um, we hear testimonies occasionally about God's um, intervention in certain circumstances. Uh, statistically, uh, Christians have trouble with marriages. Uh, Christians yep. have trouble with um, uh, dishonesty. Christians have trouble with yeah. tax evasion. Christians have trouble. Why do we never see, and why is church not a sort of place that fosters someone to come forward and say, uh, here's the truth? And how does it look like when this rebirth and this recreation, how does it actually work out in practice? Um, because yeah. this, is the, this is the thing, isn't it? A rebirth is something totally different. A rebirth is not um, tick, ticking off the right checkboxes so that when you get to heaven, they say, well, let's let's go through the form, you know, name, date of birth. Now, uh, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Oh, good. Um, you're in. Yeah. Um, that experience could not possibly be described as a rebirth. Whatever yeah, a rebirth yeah. is, it has to suggest some very radical transformation. Yeah. And, um, I mean, Jesus describes it here as being, as becoming, like being born in a totally different way, L like you were describing, becoming... A different kind of being um, hmm. you know human life can reproduce human life but the Holy Spirit here is producing a spirit-filled existence that's like a new hmm. way of being fully human hmm. yeah I mean if you're going to summarize the elements as, as I think this is a good chapter for the lesson to refer to as a summary of God's mission to the world yeah um, God's primary aim is not to identify people as goodies and baddies that that's one of the so one of the things that Jesus establishes in here is what God's mission is not. Yeah. God's mission is not to categorize people into goodies and baddies. His mission is not to provide us a checklist so that we can do it. Um, is not interested in that. He's coming to save people. Um, yep. And one of the one of the teachers at at grammar used to say when I used to get upset about students making mistakes in a maths test, he said, look, give them give them some marks, be generous. He said, this is a treasure hunt, not a witch hunt. Uh, <laughs> just look through anything they've written. Is there anything in there that they could get some marks for? And I, I wanted to say to him very much, it's not a treasure hunt and it's not a witch hunt, it's a maths test and they've got it yeah. wrong. Um, but but that sentiment, this is a treasure hunt, not a witch hunt, is seems, seems to be what God... What Jesus is saying, one of the things he's saying. Um, yeah, yeah, I like that. What, what's one of the other elements, Locke, that sort of jumps out at this as a sort of a feature of God's 
mission to us? Well, the um, the the breadth of it, the, which I already commented on, um, mm. the verse seventeen came into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. That save the world through Him is entirely consistent with the the picture of God's mission that at the start of this episode I mentioned uh, mm. resonates somewhat somewhat powerfully for me. Um, yeah. The, hmm. I, I think I'll have to unpack it in, in more in, in other episodes. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll get a chance to. Yeah. Um, there's also an element here in which God's mission is to give us the dignity of choice. God's yes. Not here to judge anyone. He's just going to bring light. And if you come to the light, do you know there's a story which is doesn't fully match the context of this passage. So this is perhaps a little outside the box. But I think of the story of Joseph. Yeah, and the brothers come to Joseph and say, "Look, we did we did wrong. We're going to name it. We did we did awful things." Um, and Joseph says, "Yes, um, it was awful. But what you meant for evil, God used for good." And that's not exactly the sentiment that's expressed here in John, but I like it. Anyone who comes to the light will discover that what they've been done has been done through God. Yeah, yeah. Or perhaps more correctly, that God's used when it says God brings good from all things for those who love Him. Does He also bring good from the things we've done wrong? Yeah. Uh, well, because in, in Joseph's case, in it seems it seems plausibly yes. Yeah. Well, and the the actual passage I'm going to go back. back what would be the ESV would be a very literal translation, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, a little more so. Yeah. Yeah. Let me look up the ESV. Um, so the ESV says. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Yeah. It's really interesting because it's people who do wicked things is not contrasted with people who do good things. It's whoever does what is true. It's it's not exactly the opposite. So that whoever does wicked things in verse 20 doesn't come to the light lest their works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. And there's a suggestion there, maybe I'm not reading too much into it, there's a suggestion that these people um, are striving for authentic experience with God and are willing to risk it. They yeah. want God to truly see. They want to bring what they've done to the light. And it's quite possible that God might not like it, but I'm going to risk it. Um, huh. I'm going to risk that sort of journey with God. And, and you know, a person who's doing what's true, um, and then for those people, they've, they're given this grace that they discover that God's working in them. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about that a little bit more. Uh, that's an interesting thought to ponder on. Um, yeah. I suspect we, we might, be, might be worth leaving it there. Yeah. Well, I'm sure our readers have more thoughts about this passage. Um, I would certainly encourage you to our dear listeners. Did I call them readers before? Um, listeners. Um, uh, it's a real interesting challenge to read this picture and to try and cast yourself in the place of Nicodemus because there's such a... Uh, Jesus seems to move from one metaphor to the next. He's talking about rebirth and then he's talking about the wind and then he's talking about light coming into darkness and he seems to just... And then the serpent being raised up. And with the aid of hindsight, we sort of put it into a cohesive package. But it's it's a fascinating... And it's a very... um. It's the opposite, isn't it, of like a legal document where everything's spelled out in forensic detail. It's very much yeah. more a Monet picture painting, isn't it, where everything's broad brushstrokes. 
and you get up to the fine details and it it's complicated and then you step back and you see the see the whole picture um certainly anyway um it's our hope and prayer to live this sort of life that's i assume anyone who's listening to the podcast has decided that they they want to come to the light and i want to come to the light and i am willing to accept luck that there is a strong component of mystery to it yeah um, yeah, it's that, not everyone who understands everything completely sees that what they've been done has been done through God, but it's the person who loves truth and does truth and comes to the light. And I think that that's comforting. Maybe maybe we don't have to understand everything, um, but we have to be we have to want to live in the light. Yeah, yeah, and that's what the, that's what God's mission is. It's also in this passage what what judgment is. Hmm. Yeah. So when God sends his light, the thing which is the judgment is the light. Yes. That's a, that's a fascinating sort of paradigm. Um, and that is actually a really interesting paradigm to start this God's, a summary of God's mission. The thing that is God's judgment is the light. The light is the thing that lets us see. It's the light is the goodness that he brings to the world. The light is he is just offering this goodness uh, to us. And um, our response to that is constitutes his judgment he in other words his judgment is to in other words it's the c.s lewis quote isn't it and there's only two sorts of people those who say to god your will be done and those to whom he says your will be done yeah exactly Mm. well let's leave it there um our our listeners can chip in extra comments and suggestions to the address sabbath school from home at gmail.com and uh, we'll see who's around next week for the recording um and I'm not sure, Locke, if it will be me, but I certainly hope to each of you, our dear listeners, that it will include you. Um, so we'll, we'll uh, talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.